Okay, hi there. Thanks for joining me for another Facebook Live. Um, so today, what I want to do is uh, look a little bit at an article that Slavoj Žižek wrote in the Independent a couple of days ago uh, that looked at Jordan Peterson and kind of put him in a wider kind of context. And part of the reason why I want to do that is because I've had people over the last six months uh, email me and ask me in person what I think about Peterson and what I think about his work. And when that started, I didn't really know anything about him. Um, I'd heard his name, but I'm not in the social media world. Obviously, I use it for my work and I engage with people a little bit, but I don't keep an eye on a lot of what's going on. There's reasons for that, by the way. Um, a lot of it is, seems to be a lot of heat with very little light. Um, uh, a lot of the social media discourse <clears throat> is, um, you know, I, I doesn't, I think, generate much insight or nuance and actually is sometimes a bit of a waste of time. Uh, we can spend hours uh, on Twitter uh, when it would be much easier and much probably more enlightening to, uh, you know, to read a good book. And by the way, I'm critiquing myself for that. That's what I was doing. It happened very gradually to me. And then a while back, I, I realized it and uh, had to do something about it. So I didn't really know much about him, but I did watch a couple of things. Um, I watched a, a, you know, an interview, um, a conversation between him and Camille Pallier uh, on postmodernism and what they call cultural Marxism, and then you know a few other bits and pieces. But yeah, it didn't, it didn't grab me that much. Uh, and really, I felt that there wasn't much I could say uh, because there was this whole mountain of stuff that was for and against. Most of it seemed really bad to me, but uh, it was like difficult to know what I could, how to, how to contribute into that massive mountain of uh, defense and critique. But then uh, I watched uh, an interview that was on Channel 4 with uh, Kathy Newman and Jordan Peterson. And uh, <clears throat> I think it, uh, I think it, it kind of went viral, I think, in many ways. It seemed to be everywhere. Um, and on the surface, of course, Jordan Peterson um, came across as uh, very reasonable, and he was on the side of empiricism. He was, uh, you know, backing up his claims with uh, kind of research. Um, and Kathy Newman seemed to be kind of flailing. Uh, she was distorting what Peterson was saying. She was condensing what Peterson was saying, and she was uh, also. Um, uh, distorting, condensing, and displacing. So, you know, Jordan Peterson would seem to make one claim and then it would become another claim. So uh, that was a surface reading. But whenever I watched it, I was like, well, no, hold on a second. There's something much more interesting going on in this interview um, than this surface reading. Um, and, you know, I thought about it briefly and then forgot all about it. But then when I read the Shizek article, I was like, ah, very good, right? This is um, really something I was thinking, but Shizek said it in a very articulate way. Um, but one of the issues with the article is that it's very short. Um, it's very pop. Um, and anybody who's new to Shizek, I think, would misunderstand the article. Uh, he obviously hasn't spent much time uh, with Peterson. Shizek's a world-class philosopher. So he's, he's just, you know, this is a small interest he kind of threw out. Um, uh, where he thinks Peterson falls within the contemporary political climate. But he, he introduced a way of thinking 
that I feel actually exposes something much more interesting in the Channel 4 interview that um, I, I think everyone's missed. Uh, as far as I can see in my like, very short look on the internet. So in order to understand, and by the way, just to say, like I'm a big fan of Shizek's work. He's been very influential. I've read most of his work. Um, we work within the same framework. Um, he's definitely someone who I continue to learn from. I'm reading his current book at the moment, uh, Incontinence of the Void, and it's incredibly good. Uh, part of it is a conversation with Alenka Sapanchek's book, What is Sex?, which is also an excellent book. So I, I, I like Shizek's academic work. But when I saw this, um, I thought, oh, this is a little bit, this is very quickly written. And somebody actually um, set, sent me Jordan Peterson's response. And Jordan Peterson said, listen, this sounds like it's been phoned in. And at first I was like, yeah, it kind of does feel a little bit like that. But then I reread it and I was like, well, no, but there's something really, really good here, I think, or really insightful. So I'll let you be the judge. I realized that um, the, the name Jordan Peterson causes uh, a lot of feeling uh, on, on, on both sides. So I'm going to try to avoid kind of like, uh, I'm going to try and offend everybody. So there you go. Equal opportunities offense. So as not to offend anybody will offend everybody. And I think that's what's going on in this article. In an interesting way, it's a critique of Peterson, but it also takes seriously something in his work and uh, uses that as a springboard. <clears throat> so, okay, to understand the article, um, you've got to understand, first of all, that Shizek is, is using two uh, words, uh, hysterical and obsessive, and he's using these in a, in a technical sense. Uh, it's often difficult in philosophy and in that psychoanalysis because some of the words that are used also are used in a popular context, so people might say, oh, that person's obsessive, or they're being hysterical. But they are technical terms, and <clears throat> uh, in, in a way, they're both neurosis. They're both forms of neurosis. And they're both ways of dealing with a trauma or antagonism at the core of one's life. Uh, so not, not just traumas that happen to you, but really the trauma that is life itself. Hysteria and obsession can, can in some ways be thought of as defenses, ways in which we continue to function uh, whenever uh, we have had painful things that we haven't been able to work through and deal with. <clears throat> and defenses are important because, you know, if you look around the world, uh, right outside my apartment at the moment, there's construction work going on. And uh, I've been watching it, and it's amazing watching the buildings fall down and the, the kind of uh, the, the various people working on electricity and structure and all of the, all of the things that go into it. But then, of course, when you're sitting there and you think about all of the things that those people are dealing with in their own personal lives, I don't know what they are, but, you know, there's a hundred people out. So some of them are going through divorces and some of them have hurt people and some of them have been hurt. Uh, all of that stuff's going on. And so you wonder, well, how do people get up in the morning and go to work and do a day's work? And of course, they have to. That's part of the issue. You have to. <laughs> um, but part of the way we do it is through defenses through ways that, that help us kind of keep things in check so that we can get on with other things. But of course, the problem is uh, often that can cause more damage in the long run. So um, I'm going to define very briefly 
how an hysteric responds to trauma and how an obsessive responds to trauma. Um, an, an hysteric uh, tends to e- experience distortion in reality. So they have, ang- a, a, a hysteric has a lot of anxiety. So they, they're anxious. They might be scared of heights. They might be afraid of flying, uh, enclosed spaces, open spaces. Uh, they might be uh, scared of work colleagues. They may be unable to open emails, answer phones, uh, all sorts of things. So there's certain anxieties that get in the way of affirming life and living, right? Now, what often happens, well, what does happen is the hysteric, they have reasons for their anxiety. So for example, flying, people can die. Uh, they walk around and, and triple lock all the doors, make sure everything's closed before they go to sleep because somebody could break in. Um, or they're afraid of, you know, kind of wide open spaces because if you go out into the open, you know, who knows what happens? People get robbed, people get killed. Um, so there's all these kind of reasonable explanations for the anxiety. However, for anybody else who knows the hysteric, they know that these are not. Um, these are distorted, they're, they're not really justifiable. They have the air of sense, but they really don't look sensible at all. Um, and not only that, so for example, if an hysteric thinks that their boss is out to get them, and they think that all their colleagues hate them, and they would love to see him or her fired. And you know, so the hysteric comes home from work feeling persecuted, um, and, and seeing all of these terrible things that are happening around them, right, that are being done to them. Even if, if their co-worker is being nice, it's like, oh, they're being nice because they want to lull me into a false sense of security or whatever. Now, so the hysteric actually misperceives and, and has a very difficult uh, relationship with data, with empirical reality. They miss, they, they miss things, they misinterpret things, they don't see things that are there and they do see things that are not there. Um, but Lacan interestingly says about hysteria that the, the, the hysteric lies, but the lie envelops a truth. So while the hysteric is saying, oh, you know, everyone's out to get me at work and, you know, or I'm terrified of heights and, you know, because I could fall or it could be or an earthquake or something like that if I'm, uh, you know, if you're in a building. Um, the, 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 the lie is, of course, that's not like very likely at all. Um, but the truth is the anxiety. The truth is the anxiety. Lacan says anxiety is the effect that does not lie. So other emotions can lie. You can be happy, but you're really sad. You can feel hatred, but you really love a person. So it's funny. People think, oh, emotions don't lie, but emotions lie all the time. <laughs> um, but, but there's one in the psychoanalysis, there's one kind of emotion or effect which doesn't lie and it's anxiety. And the reason why they say that is because anxiety always points to a real trauma. So somebody might uh, kind of in their childhood have a blank, you know, between the ages of five and seven or something like that. They can't remember anything. They have a blank. Um, but they have an anxiety of, in, uh, say, uh, enclosed spaces. And what the anxiety points to is it points to actually a real trauma 
that might have happened in that space of time where the person has no memory. They literally just, it's a, it's a black hole, right? And it might not be anything terrible that happened as in objectively terrible, but it's still terrible. That person might have, you know, felt abandoned by their parents. They might have um, felt under threat in some way, whatever it is. But something maybe happened in that blank space. And the anxiety points to a real trauma, but it's displaced. It's being displaced into enclosed spaces. It's being displaced into a fear of, of cars or driving on the freeway or, or whatever it is. And so in analysis, the, the analyst is great working with an hysteric because you go, okay, the stuff that's being said might, might be distorted or condensed or displaced, but the truth is being spoken. The truth is in the anxiety. And then what the analyst does is they then attempt to help the, the analyzand to reconstruct and return to the real site of the antagonism, the real site of the trauma to begin to work it through. Now, an obsessive is different. An obsessive is someone who tells the truth, but the truth enfolds a lie. So if the hysteric, in a sense, lies to themselves and to others, but but in that lie, there is a truth that is the anxiety and where the anxiety points. The obsessive tells the truth, but the truth uh, hides a lie. And what that means is an obsessive will be very interested in, in empirical reality. They're very interested in the truth and what in facts and all of that. And so an obsessive will say to an hysteric, no, they're not out to get you. Look at the evidence. Here's this, this, and this. Look at what you're overlooking. Look at all these kind of misreadings you're doing. Of course, you shouldn't be scared of heights. Like the idea that a, an earthquake, say if you're afraid of being in a high building, that an earthquake is going to happen is, is so infinitesimally small. And these buildings are all earthquake proof, you know. And, and, and so you're talking about there's more chance that you'll win the lottery three times in a row than this building will fall down in an earthquake. Whatever, the, whatever it is. So that's what the obsessive does. But the obsessive still also has to deal with the antagonism and the trauma of life. So what, how do they cope with it? Well, they, they put the antagonism into someone else. They find an enemy or they find an obstacle. And it has to be an obstacle that they can interpret as being the real issue. So, for example, and this is why Shizak uses the example of uh, a guy who is jealous that his partner's sleeping around. So what, and what happens is he finds out that she is. So he's like, well, look, you know, I'm jealous, but it, it's true. I was right. Like, she's, she's, she's seeing somebody else. But, you know, Shizak is making the point that, that, no, 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 just because it's true doesn't mean you're not still pathologically jealous. So you, like it's the old saying, um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? You can, uh, you can be paranoid that the FBI are out to get you and they actually are out to get you. <laughs> but just because it's true they're out to get you, it doesn't mean that you don't require that belief in order to hold yourself together. Now a tale here is when say an obsessive is secretly happy when they discover that their partner says sleeping around. I told you so. I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. And the way they're talking, even though they're feeling suffering, there's some enjoyment in the way they're talking about it. Like, ah, I knew the FBI right to get me. <laughs> you know, it's like, because that enemy is required 
in order to displace the anxiety or the antagonism onto another. Now, this is the basics of uh, fascism, of course. So the fascist community is a community that believes in organic oneness. So organic wholeness, oneness with nature, uh, a kind of a, a kind of romanticized engagement with the world, a non-antagonistic source of everything, which is disturbed. And the disturbance is an enemy, and the enemy is the figure of the Jew, the Jewish community. And then the idea within fascism is if you get rid of the Jewish community, we will return to this organic wholeness, this, this kind of like this oneness, this very simple romantic life. Of course, not completely, but, but that's the idea is there is type of, uh, a type of way of being in the world which lacks the antagonism and the traumas of life. And so there needs to be an enemy that can be blamed for that not happening, for the problems that we see in the world and the problems in ourselves. This can be called fear of castration, which a fear of castration is like, um, if you imagine taking a toy from a child, the very act of removing the, the toy from the child makes the toy seem incredible like oh my goodness so it's a very removal of something ordinary makes you fantasize that it's extraordinary so for people who the fear of castration is in a sense when a community feels that something is being taken away from them and that 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 removal makes that thing seem you know super important like it's 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 the thing that would if only we got it back we would return to some sort of kind of organic oneness with the world uh, a, a new organic relationship with, with nature. So the obsessive looks for an enemy and they look for an enemy that they can empirically feel justified in having. So within Nazism, and this is what Shizek brings up again in the article, he says, well, listen, so in Germany, the Jews were isolated as the enemy, as the antagonism externalized that needed to be got rid of. But actually, they were a perfect group to attack because, of course, like, you know, it's a community where there were people in power. There were bankers. There were people in the media. There were people in politics. And, of course, in any group, whatever group you choose, you'll be able to find people in that group who are selfish or who are violent or who are criminals, right? So what happens is you find the group and then you find empirically the data to kind of go, oh, and look, I'm justified in that group and seeing that group as bad. So the obsessive always has to find evidence. So immigrants, oh, you find that tiny percentage of immigrants who have committed crimes or whatever. And then you, you build it, you go, there's the empir empirical evidence to say that my belief that these people are wrong is correct. Um, so there, there's, the, there's the obsessive and the hysteric. Now, Coming back to then Peterson and, and what she's actually more interested in is how Peterson functions for a certain number of people on the right. And the idea is that Peterson is obsessive in a sense of structurally obsessive, that he's interested obviously in empirical truth. And even though some of the, some of the stuff that I've watched, like it's, it's research that is like, um, you know, not, not incredibly strong research, but he's still interested in, in his claims being backed up by research. So his claims sound true, and if, you, if one of them was not true, he would, within reason, you know, obviously change that. But 
Uh, I think what Shizek is saying is, but what you see is you see that, that Jordan Peterson has this weird enemy <laughs> that is, uh, you know, like cultural Marxists, that, which is an interesting phrase that um, I haven't delved into it that deeply, but I, I, it's, a, it's a relatively new term that's being used in America to describe the Frankfurt School, but it's cultural Marxism is like a, it's a bit of a boogeyman, but there's like, or feminism, right? These are, these are the enemies. So whenever you hear Jordan Peterson talk, it's like, with Kathy Newman, for example, everything that is said, you know, like in terms of wage differences or whatever, um, can be explained. And obviously, again, you know, multivariate analysis, like any first year student knows that stuff, right? That's not, there's nothing deep about that. It's, it's kind of obvious, right? So all of this, this can be explained. Um, but... The, the, what comes across is there is this idea that, that, in, that the world's working fine. It was working fine. Evolution is a kind of a, a weirdly, as a non-antagonistic kind of organic development. Um, and that actually what's coming in and wrecking this is the Marxists, the communists, the, uh, the feminists. So there is this other group that is the enemy. And then, of course, there is kind of you find the elements of that of the people who are in those groups who are a bit like pure kind of saying kind of crazy things and then you connect that you could like look i'm empirically correct in that justification uh but what for shizak where the truth is is the truth is in the need for the enemy now this brings me to kind of obviously P peterson's jungian approach because Weirdly and interestingly, uh, Peterson is, is influenced by Jung. Even though he's a clinical psychologist, he's interested in kind of Jungian psychoanalysis. Um, now, Jung is a kind of a deviation of psychoanalysis. Uh, later, Jung uh, is kind of like disbarred from psychoanalysis. He's rejected because um, he kind of goes against the, the central thrust of psychoanalysis, which could be said to be trauma is a fundamental aspect of existence, that the antagonism of life is something that must be tarried with, but um, is not something that can be, can be got rid of, right? So for Jung, as a kind of like a Gnostic kind of like, kind of mystical psychoanalysis, you have this, this kind of notion of uh, wholeness, oneness, that, that, that trauma can be, uh, you know, can be dissipated, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and, and so Jung is a kind of, for, for someone like Shizek, it could be maybe described as a benign fascism, <laughs> because fascism always has, of course, this idea of a underlying harmony and wholeness and completeness that is disrupted by a trauma, the trauma of the Jewish community or the trauma of Northern Ireland, the Catholic or the Protestant community. So there's always this, this belief in the underlying harmony of everything disrupted by some other um, that must be got rid of in some kind of way to return to the organic wholeness. And so the obsessive critique is always looking for an enemy. So that is kind of Shizek's framing of this where he's saying, you know, the critique is not... So in other words, when you look at Kathy Newman and Jordan Peterson, you go on the surface, Jordan Peterson is on the side of truth. And Kathy Newman is, is on the side of uh, 
the untruth through distortion, condensation and displacement. But then using these terms, you go, yeah, but at a deeper level, Kathy Newman is on the side of truth because the anxiety that is fueling that is real. There is a real antagonism within our society. There is a real uh, political, uh, there are real political and economic issues um, that are damaging and destroying people and causing all sorts of problems. Uh, whereas for Peterson, she's like saying, at a deeper level, he is on the side of a lie. Because Peterson is, is whenever you listen to him, is constantly kind of going like, no, this is just, this is kind of a lie perpetrated by the enemy. And the enemy being, as I say, feminism or, or cultural Marxism or communism. Um, and so, yeah, so what's interesting here is Shizek is going, well, they're, they're both wrong, both sides for different reasons. And actually the side that looks most wrong might actually have the most truth. And the, the side that looks most right might actually be, be making the biggest error. Um, so like, let, me, let me be concrete for a second. Um, if you take Northern Ireland as an example, I grew up during the Troubles and it was a conflict between uh, Protestants and Catholics often, uh, Republicans uh, and Loyalists. And at the, on the surface level, it was about um, religion. It was about um, uh, people uh, on that side of the wall, because there are a lot of peace walls, like hurting and maiming and killing people on this side of the wall. Uh, it was a lot about the people on that side of the wall having uh, less empathy or less, being less human, right? So all of this stuff. But actually, that was all distortion, condensation, displacement. I mean, the real, like, because the people on either side of the wall, and by the way, you'd have a wall here, and then on this side, 10 feet away from this side, 10 feet away, like where the gardens are backing onto the wall, you would have the two sides of the community. And if you looked from the outside, if you, as an American, say, you came to Northern Ireland and you went to one house, and then you went to the other, in some ways you would see very little difference. You would see real problems. You'd see unemployment. You'd see um, uh, financial destitution. You'd see uh, you know, issues in the family, all of this stuff. You'd see the same kind of issues. And when you saw that, you go, oh, hold on a second. There's, there's, like, these people have more in common with each other than they have with, say, the middle class within their own community. So the anxiety and the, the anger and the bitterness, and all that anxiety was real but it was displaced, it was put in onto the wrong place, onto the wrong person, into the wrong movement. So what Shizek is saying in this article is he says, listen, this is his critique of, well, one of his critiques of progressivism and liberalism, but the idea of progressivism has within it uh, a true anxiety, but displaces where the real um, political movement and the, the real place of argument and transformation exists. Uh, now, of course, once I've said that, you're probably going to go, okay, so what is the true site? And I would prefer to, to look at that in more depth uh, rather than a Facebook Live or definitely rather than the last five minutes of a Facebook Live. But, um, but uh, part of my work um, is, and I, I think Shizek has a very good analysis of this. That's one of the reasons why I like him. I think it's worth reading his analysis of politics. Um, and I operate with a similar Lacanian frame to him. So in my own work, uh, I see the problem as being related to how desire functions in our contemporary world. 
So the, the issue is, is related to how desire functions in consumerism. And the answer lies in creating communities that short circuit the form that desire takes uh, today uh, in America and in, in so many other places in the world. So that's in a nutshell where I think the, the thing lies. Um, and that's why I do a lot of work on, on the theme of desire. And um, I would recommend uh, the work of Todd McGowan. I've recommended him many times, but I think um, he sees correctly. Um, and also Alenka Sapanchek and Slavio Shizek. I think those are all thinkers who I think give a good reading of, of the truth of the anxiety that you find within progressivism. So, you know, there you go. I, I hope that I've clarified the article or met, I probably haven't. You've probably listened to this and gone, that's even more confusing. But now you can go back and reread the article and you could also maybe rewatch the, uh, the Channel 4 interview. And then maybe with those three things together, um, uh, you'll, it'll make sense, even if you disagree with it. I mean, you may also listen to this and go, oh, that's an interesting way to think. But I don't think Jordan Peterson fits into that model. That's totally fine. Like, What's more important about what Shizek is saying is that, that there are forms of critique where people uh, keep on the empirical level as a way to... Um, uh, and have an enemy, and that's their way of, of avoiding a real antagonism at the core of either their individual life or society or politics. And there are those who experience a real anxiety but displace where the real issue is. And so therefore we never get to the bottom of things. We, we just flail and fight and distort, and we never kind of move towards health. And the role of the theorist is to be the analyst the role of the theorist is to try to take the anxiety seriously, reveal its true source, and work through it. Um, and uh, that's something that is central to the work of pyrotheology. Okay, um, how long have I been talking for? Let's see, I'm not actually too sure. Uh, I'm going to look just look at a couple of questions. I'm sure I'm a bit worried whenever I deal with something that is like Jordan Peterson is so huge that. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm in fear and trembling and turning to the questions. <laughs> oh, Daniel says, will you get Jordan Peterson on the podcast? I would, I'd love to actually, I think that'd be really fun. Um, and I know Elliot's been kind of, is really interested in what Jordan Peterson says as well. So that would be a great thing to do. He's just huge. So um, it's unlikely he would uh, accept an invitation from me, but yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, Adam says, what would be the difference between cultural Marxism and, cultural Marxism and shibboleths? Uh, yeah, I think cultural Marxism is a shibboleth. And for most people, not for everybody, but what the little bit of research I've done is the term, it's not connected to kind of Marxist theory. <clears throat> it's not connected to a deep reading of the Frankfurt School. Because the Frankfurt School are incredibly difficult. I mean, I studied them for years. You know, these are people that are, you know, Lucas and Adorno and uh, Habermas. These are people who are very, you know, interesting and brilliant and difficult to read. Uh, and so the word cultural Marxism seems to be more thrown around to mean the kind of like, kind of that progressivism that you see within colleges at the moment and the progressivism that you see within the church at the moment. So that's, <clears throat> so I, I think it mostly functions as a, as a shibboleth. 
and say, oh, here's Cam, Cam Freeman. Cam's a good friend of mine from Australia, um, who I think is a very insightful guy. Um, and I probably disagree with him loads of times and he disagrees with me loads of times, but he's somebody who I, I very much respect. Um, what, so let's see what you're saying. Um, so uh, left political correctness, uh, cultural Marxism, is not an external intrusion or boogeyman. It's the dominant cultural discourse in academia, the media and the entertainment industry, and therefore the handmaiden of neoliberal capitalism, imminent to the problems of the existing order of things. So yeah, <clears throat> Um, you know, I kind of partly agree with that. Uh, uh, I, and, and, and she's actually, well, you know this because you know she's ex work well. That's what she's is saying. I think he's saying that, but he, what he's saying, and I don't know if you agree with this, Cam, is that, that it's the anxiety within it's real. And that's the difference. The anxiety within, uh, say, political correctness uh, in the academy and the entertainment industry is 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 a real it, what what Marx would say? It's like a it's a real explosion of it's a it's a false it's a guise for a real. Let me repeat. Sorry, it is the truth that's in the guise of a lie. It's a it's a real explosion of real suffering, of real trauma, of real political and cultural issues that that we need to wrestle with. Um, but uh, it's it explodes in a distorted, condensed, and displaced way. So that, that's how I would read it, <clears throat> um, to, to some extent, and I think that's how Shizek would read it. Um, oh, there's lots of great stuff being said here. <clears throat> this is great. Uh, Seth says, how do we distinguish between genuine victims and scapegoats? Um, <clears throat> or do you mean genuine enemies and scapegoats? Because well, because scapegoats are generally victims. I, I get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read that as genuine enemies, <clears throat> as in, for example, I could scapegoat a community and say they're the problem, but actually, that community could be doing like uh, loads of violence. There could be. They could be very, very problematic. You know, say. You know, you could. You could say the legal system or the police or whatever it is. Um, so when is it like you're just scapegoating, and when is it that? They're, that they're really the problem. <clears throat> um, I actually talked about this in another video, and maybe I should link to it, but the idea is this. And the example I used previously is a, a hypochondriac. So you think about someone who is a hypochondriac who thinks they have cancer, and then they discover that they have got cancer, right? The hypochondriac is in a sense relieved when they discover they have cancer because now they have empirical evidence for all of the antagonisms and feelings they have, right? Now they can go, oh, I wasn't just crazy. I do have cancer. So weirdly for a hypochondriac, getting the disease is, uh, can have a, a, a certain amount of pleasure in it. Now it's still a disease and it's still problematic. The problem is the hypochondriac is libidinally invested in having the illness. Now contrast that with someone who's not a hypochondriac, but who does find out they have cancer. There's no enjoyment in that. There's no sense in which they wanted it or they have libidinal investment in it. So they can better fight against it. They can better do things that will get rid of the cancer. So the way you know, say you have like a cancerous element in society, an element in society that's problematic, you have to ask yourself the question, am I libidinally invested in that? 
as in, do, do I put all of my anxiety and anger into that group or that political figure and say, if only they weren't there, then everything would be great? Because if you are, then you're libidinally invested in that enemy, which therefore means that you will often self-sabotage. You'll often have an, a vested interest in keeping that enemy because that enemy is actually holding you together. That's the basic fascist logic, right? But if you have an enemy, like you go like this political figure or whatever is bad, but you're not libidinally invested in them, then you can better engage with and analyze and work out the best strategies to, to do something about it. So that's the difference. The difference is, are you invested libidinally in the other that you think is the problem? Or are you, you know, being able to disinvest yourself? That's partly why I came off social media, by the way. I find myself becoming libidinally invested in, in issues that I thought were bad. Um, and I, I felt that if I was too invested in terms of my sexual desire, my libidinal energy, um, then uh, it, it would muddy the waters and I would be less effective. Um, okay, Caleb, here's a question. I'm just jumping in, by the way, so don't think that I'm censoring your questions. I, I decide to read one and then I go for it. <laughs> uh, Caleb, here's a question, Pete. Peterson seems to have an underlying critique of Derrida. Lacan and others of the same ilk. Yep. <laughs> Lumping them into a category of French thought, misappropriated into American thought, and ultimately being bereft of depth with regards to social solutions on a governing scale. Very well put. Um, he moves at that point to a critique uh, of postmodernism. Yep. What do you think people uh, might most often miss uh, related to grasping the views, beliefs of Lacan and of the like? Uh, views that you've expressed. Oh, sorry, let me reread that. Sorry. What do you think people might most often miss uh, related to grasping the views, beliefs of Lacan and the like? Views that you've expressed contribute positively to raveling as opposed to the easier route of dismissal that Peterson or his contemporaries uh, like uh, Pallier uh, appears to take. Um, okay, that's, that's very well articulated. Um, basically, yes. So, uh, Pallier, who's very interesting, I've only seen a little bit of her, but she's an interesting figure as well. Pallier and Peterson, they do see, a, they don't like French thought, or at least they don't like French thought as it has infiltrated the American Academy. Um, now, I got to say, I have listened to them on this, and I've got to, while they may be good in their fields, I feel that they're reading, well, particular Peterson, I, I less bracket i don't know enough about pallier um peterson he it's not his area so you know you really feel that he hasn't read um and i don't think i'm saying it in a negative way like people have critiques of things that they, they haven't studied too much of that's not a problem but um you know he i don't think he's versed in these figures they're very very difficult figures um but I think his main problem is, and that's why he used the term postmodernism. Technically, in philosophy, the technical term is post-structuralism. So when someone's talking about postmodernism, they generally mean French continental thought that has infiltrated popular culture. And he has a certain critique of that. And to be honest, fair on him. Like, you know, there's a, whenever I see how some of the continental thinkers are used and abused within kind of like popular discourse, um, you know, I think there, there, there are definitely things to bring up. I just uh, don't, you know, I just don't think that he 
uh, appreciates the, the sources actually, you know, or, you know, so anyway, you've put the point very well. So what do I think people most often miss? Um, with relate, related to people like Derrida and Lacan and Shizek. Um, okay, here's the thing on, on the side of Peterson as well, <laughs> is that French thinkers can be purposefully obscure. That's not completely true. There's a style of writing in continental philosophy that is partly designed to get you to think, to disrupt you and disturb you, and that you have to read and reread. And it's a certain style that infuriates some people and some people love. Um, American style of writing is very much, I would say, about clarity. Um, it's very much about trying to, to not so much get the person to think, but to, uh, in a sense, in the structure of the, the words and the way it flows, but to communicate something. And I have to say, some of my favorite kind of philosophers to read are American or American-influenced. They're all trained in continental philosophy, but they have that beautiful American pragmatism. They have that. And so John Caputo is one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, he's a wonderful man as well. And he is such a genius. He is so brilliant. Uh, but he is also such a brilliant writer. And he has this beautifully clear and, and, and lyrical way of writing that I think is very true to an American style. So... Um, I think, yeah, if, if, if certain kind of academics in America are like, I do not want to waste the time trying to understand Lacan um, or say Derrida, uh, John Caputo is a brilliant Derridaean, but who writes with great clarity and conviction. I think Caputo is a very clear Derrida person and Shizek is a very clear Lacan person. So um, yeah, start with them. And then if you want to really kill yourself if you're masochistic then you yeah, jump into reading you know Derrida and Lacan for a laugh all right listen there's so much here and I feel like maybe oh no I'll, I'll, I'll go a bit longer because of course you're not locked in your rooms you can turn this off if you're bored um, yeah Shannon yeah you're echoing what I was saying said it very clearly uh, hysterics are trapped in anxiety, often reasonable and understandable, but actually distorted and enlarged. Trauma distorts. Yes, the reasonable and understandable part of anxiety is not in what it attaches to. So, for example, I, I won't fly or I won't drive on freeways or something like that. Um, but but, it's, but the, the, the reasonableness is hidden in that. That's the key is like that whatever your anxiety, however it manifests, there is a truth being told in that. And, and, and if you kind of work with it, you'll eventually find it. But it's good to work with a person. If you suffer from anxiety a lot, if it, get, it doesn't matter if you have a bit. If it doesn't get in the way of your life, don't worry about it. But if it gets in the way of your life, um, it might be helpful to find someone who works with that, who believes in depth psychology and who will um, who'll help you go down the winding path and help you find kind of, you know, a way to find relief. Uh, uh, Glenn, hey Glenn, hope to see you in Dublin. I'm Sadly, I won't be there, man. You're there before I get there. I get into Belfast in, uh, in Mar uh, second week in March. So I'm, I hate to miss you. Hey, Kelly Brown, who's Jordan Peterson? Kelly, that's beautiful stay that way not because he's good or bad but just because like 
you know, there's not many people who can say that now. I was one of them up until a few months ago. <laughs> um, all right, listen, thank you so much um, for, for listening into that. I, and, you know, this is a controversial topic. Please feel free to, to disagree, to um, throw in your thoughts. And as I say, what I've tried to do is offend everybody <laughs> so as to offend nobody to go like, let's go a bit deeper into you know that channel four interview and let's see if there's something going on that we might have missed the first time we saw it uh, and that's if, if you get that out of this uh video then then i'm really pleased uh, also just to let you know there'll be another fundamentalist uh podcast on, uh, on sunday it's 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 blowing up uh, people are engaging with it or enjoying the conversation where we're where there's lots of stuff being talked about on twitter it's really exciting so we're gonna we're i've already written to elliot uh, like i texted him um like 12 topics that we could cover so basically we are going to be around for a while hopefully we're going to we're about to record another uh, another episode now and also if you want to come and hang out with me for four or five days talk about all of this stuff i do a festival in belfast and it's at the end of april and it's art and it's music and it's theater comedy movies it's it's everything lots of pub crawls lots of sitting around open fires talking about life together if that interests you it's called wake it's called wake because wake is a, a death ritual uh, an irish thing where technically um, you mourn and you remember what has died. You, you tell stories, you laugh and you cry. And as you mourn and you remember the death of what you love, um, you're able to take some of that into yourself and move forward. So wake is a kind of way of saying all of us are coping with the loss of things. Many of the people who go are coping with the death of uh, their religion, their religious past or background. But they want to mourn that. They want to remember it. They want to be angry about some of it and they want to laugh about some of it. And ultimately, they want to take some of the good within that forward with them into the rest of their lives. And so Wake is about helping you do that. Um, so that's happening. And there was one other thing. Oh, yes, and the Atheism for Lent. We started yesterday, but uh, the first five days are very introductory. So if you join up any time, I would say up until Monday, very easy to catch up. After Monday, it might be a little bit more difficult. So if you're interested in the Atheism for Lent journey, we've got a lot of people doing it, and um, uh, it's exciting, and I'll be giving a talk on that on Sunday. Please go onto my website, and uh, you'll find out more there. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, checking in, and um, I hope uh, to see some of you as I'm traveling around this year on tour. If you see me, uh, please do come up and uh, say, I'd like to shake your hand and say thank you for following my work, engaging with it. Um, and you know, for those of you who support my work, I really appreciate it. It allows me to do this and um, everything else I'm doing. Thank you.